on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody. It is July 30th. We're coming to you live from Studio B here at WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning, Jamie. Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. And we are here with a special guest today, Mairead Case. Hello. We have, uh, Mairead is in town. She is a uh, well-known, actually, Chicago author, part of the Lumpen scene, a former contributor to Punk Planet and Book Slut. And she has a new book uh, out from Featherproof Press called See You in the Morning that we're going to be discussing. But we're going to have a wide-ranging discussion today. But first of all, welcome back to the city. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. So tell us a little bit, just so we can get going, tell our listeners a little bit about your background here in the city. Because you've had a very long connection with Chicago. This is kind of your your home. And you have been involved uh, intimately with a number of the projects that uh, we at Lumpen have done. Yeah, um, I uh, was living in Indiana for college, and um, I read Punk Planet, and I was doing the review section, and um, Jessica Hopper needed a roommate for the summer, and so I just put stuff in, like, two boxes and came out and then stayed, um, which uh, was a really good jump, and I wanted to be part of, um, like, I love Studs Terkel, and I love Gwendolyn Brooks, and I wanted to be a Chicago kind of writer, so... I came out here and um, Dave Hofer talked about how you need to be able to haul your own amp up the stairs. So I started doing a bunch of different editing projects for folks and just kind of dove in and got lucky. What, what is a Chicago kind of writer? I think that's a good place to start. Um, you listen to people. You are involved in neighborhood politics. Um, you uh, don't always write like a fancy white dude who's in an ivory tower. Um, you, uh, you know, make friends in bars <laughs> and, um, you know. We talk about on the show a lot about the uh, like the Brooklyn syndrome. It's the uh, struggling white male or female bartender slash artist mm-hmm. novels that come out. And I, uh, we had um, what's the guy's name from the Point, Mike? John Baskin. We had John Baskin. I said, if I have to read another one of those books, I'm going to shoot myself in the face. <laughs> and it's just like I don't care. Like I don't care. And One of the things I like about Chicago and the tradition of literature is just what you said. You talk to people in the bars. You know people in the neighborhood. It's a city of neighborhoods. Um, You know, some neighborhoods are less neighborhoody than others. I I feel Bridgeport, um, all of us, you know, Jamie lives in Bridgeport. Mike lives in Pilsen. I live in Brighton Park. And they're all very, like, um, you know, Chicago neighbors. I know all my neighbors. Yeah, I was Pilsen for 10 years. um, And I worked in different neighborhoods all around. I used to work with the Neighborhood Writing Alliance. And so we would do different workshops and libraries. um, And, uh, yeah. Jamie and I talk about this, too. You know, if you're over 40 and you stay here and you're in the art scene at all with literature, books, music, you know everyone or there's a six degree of separation. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's one thing I love about Chicago. And, you know, it's, I feel like, and I can't speak for every city, but it's a lot less pretentious than some areas. You know, I mean, there are pretentious people here, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't feel as pretentious as some of the other scenes in the city. So, And that's always the thing, too. Like, you know, the, I, I know and love plenty of white people who are bartenders and, uh, and you know, also write books, but you also want to be like, no, just talk to your neighbor and then it'll be okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I think there's a level, too, like not necessarily your neighborhood bartender, but more like the... The struggling cocktail server, you know, that's like schlepping, you know, $15 drinks to Manhattanites and then going back to Brooklyn and trying to make it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There's a book, uh, Sweet Biter, Sweet Bitter, that mm-hmm. came out recently. And, I, like, I read, like, two pages. I'm like, this, who would want to read this? You know, like, <laughs> it's just gross. You know, one of the things you were just talking about, Marit, about 
moving here, mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm not familiar with the names you mentioned. What was the name of the guy who said you got to haul your own amp? Oh, um, Dave Hofer. He uh, has worked at Reckless for forever, and um, he writes about music, and he was the reviews editor at Punk Planet. Well, um, while you were talking about that, I was just thinking about the idea of mentorship and, and, and kind of apprenticeship in mm-hmm. writing. Has that... That seems to be the way, the old way of doing things. You found a writer you liked, you stalked them, mm-hmm. you made them listen to you. They taught you how to write. And now there are a ton of programs, mm-hmm. um, higher education programs. Is there still, did you have any kind of mentorship here? I think I had different examples for how to work and how to talk about the work of writing and how to kind of make different rent in different ways. I got a lot of help out here for just figuring out how to be a human and talk about finances. Um, I don't. I don't know for sure that I really kind of followed any specific person around. I read a lot, um, and that helps. That's a good point. I mean, you are a working writer, and it's uh, something we actually don't talk about often on the show and probably should. It's difficult to make a living in any Mm -hmm. arts, but it's particularly difficult at this time, uh, maybe more than any other time that I can think of, to make a living as a writer simply because the number of paid outlets has cratered with the, the death of print advertising. What what is the kind of advice maybe you would give to a young writer who wants to be a working writer, who wants to be a fiction writer or even a nonfiction writer in today's marketplace? Because you are also a teacher and, and you, you do these kind of things. Yeah, and I mean, I'm lucky that I love teaching. Um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't do it if I didn't really care about it. I've done different kinds of things to, you know, like I used to work in a pumpkin pie factory on the holidays and like smell like cinnamon walking everywhere. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like you do a lot of different kinds of things. But um, I think... I think just to remember that you're not a good writer if you live in the attic. And so, yeah, like get out and take the pumpkin pie job and like remember that you're always a writer even if you don't write every day. Um, And ultimately, if you can find some way to have financial stability to whatever degree that means for you, then um, then you're going to write better. Um, Dave, uh, you said it was Dave Hoffer. Mm -hmm. Is he the one that wrote the biography of the guy from Nuclear Salt? He's in like in a million bands in Brutal Truth, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've met him before. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he's a good dude. So talk about this is your first fiction book, right? Mm -hmm. Your first nonfiction. Tell us a little bit about what the inspiration for this was. Uh, We're going to have a reading from it in just a second. But tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book and what what you were trying to get across here. Um, the first part of it was just, you know, the performative nature of Chicago uh, reading series. Like, I I started writing about three different people um, that were all in a small town in Indiana, which I have also lived in, and uh, just kind of thought about different ways to have there be an exciting reading in a coffee shop or a bar or on a street corner. And then um, the main character, I, I switched their gender back and forth because I wasn't sure how I wanted that to stay. And then eventually... They started to sound truer, and then I stuck with it. I was interested in writing a book about being a teenager that didn't have some sort of big triumphant ending um, because I was certainly an anxiety-ridden, weird teenager, and it it kind of felt like everything was dreadful all the time. You know, like there was never any sort of like one minute where you're like, oh, and now I can take on the world. It was always just like, ugh. So... I wanted to write a book like that. <laughs> well, we've got a, a reading, actually, that is a, a bit of an anxiety-written passage. This is from See in the Morning by Married Case. We'll be back in just a couple seconds. Louise and I made up stories about people who bought each other plaques. People were in love or guilty afterwards, or else just advertising. Louise's finger combs back her hair a bunch. She keeps things in her hands, cigarettes or popsicle sticks or whistling grass. Her hands are big and elegant as fans. I'm in a band, she said. We're new Minotaur. I play drums. 
Right, so she must be one of the punk kids. I looked at her arms, which were like pipe cleaners wrapped with pipe cleaners. For our album cover, said Louise, I covered my chest in craft fur and took a photo on the street in the dark. It wasn't dumb. Sometimes when people do that, it's dumb. But this wasn't. Cool, I said, and I meant it. I liked her. Louise and I walked by some apartments near the library, and I thought how nice it would be living there with her, reading, watching people reading. If you could live in a library, we could have candles and rugs and be warm. Louise looked like she got cold a lot. Let's go to my place, she said. I can drive. There was coconut on her cheek. Instead of telling her or brushing it off, I stared and thought about skin. So what do you do, Louise asked. Her dashboard was covered with straw wrappers and chemical sugar packets. A bobble dog. I write, I guess, I said. I don't know. I go to shows. We were at a stoplight and Louise looked at me around her glasses, which were open mouth, big and dark, plastic, painted gold. Wait, she said. Wait. How old are you? Oh, God. I'm old, I said. I've been around. I figured she was like 24 or something. Didn't want her to think I was a baby. She shrugged, nodded, made a left turn. Didn't tell me her age either, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Where Louise lived had folding chairs on the porch and orange plastic flowers and buckets and curtains made from Saturday morning cartoon sheets. It smelled like the inside of a seasonal beach bag, but then we walked down the hallway and it smelled more like bread. It was kind of dinner time. I wanted to sit on the kitchen counter and wait to see who else came into the room. Want a beer? Louise asked. Okay, I said. I guess so. I'd never had one, but whatever. Secretly, I'm a natural. Waiting for Louise to say something else, I leaned against the refrigerator door. It was jammed with magnets as decoration not to hold things. Birds, red shoes, skylines, a tree. Here, she said, scratching her ankle with her toe. They're by the juice. Let me show you. Louise came towards me, her arm the color of oysters and throats and milk, her bones snapped thin. That winky cat tattoo. I didn't move, and I ignored the feeling of wanting to turn into purple smoke. I looked Louise dead on and her lips, and I parted mine, and I came towards her, too. Oh, she said. Oh. She went backwards and swallowed a laugh. Oh, honey, that's, that's not what I meant. Ugh, now I wanted to be liquid, pour myself down the hallway. Suddenly her face became different. Not mean, though, just thinking. And that was a reading from Married Cases. See you in the morning. The music, uh, as always, from the International Anthem Recording Archive. That was Tamika Reed's new project here and now. Take us through that scene, which is very, very awkward. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and awkward in a true way, too. That sounded amazing. Thank you. Um, I uh, That actually, to be totally honest, is like something that I... This is not autobiographical, but like that part is. I was working at a bookstore, and I thought that somebody really wanted I didn't know what I was doing either you know and you had this minute you're like oh do I just kiss somebody now is this actually how this works and uh he he was not as kind as Louise is in that Mm -hmm. that piece but you know it was it was honest and I think that you know a lot of moments are like that you're like do I just dive in and see what happens um but uh but yeah the the character um meets this uh girl at this coffee shop and um the character is always there with uh, their best friend. And um, finally, one day, this girl at the coffee shop is like, do you want to hang out? And the best friend is like, oh, 
um, she she probably wants to make out with you. And um, the character's like, oh, well, I don't know. Maybe they just want to hang out with me. Um, but the best friend's like, no, 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 no. It's definitely, it's definitely like a, a sex thing. And uh, so they just kind of have an awkward, awkward time of it. But, I wanted to. I wanted to talk about your characters too. One of the, um, I was on a literature committee, teen literature committee, and I, I, this book, I would say it's for everyone, but it could definitely be a crossover novel for young adults. But one of the things that I was very impressed with with your book was the voice is very authentic. And one of the things, like when forty-five-year-old people write for teenagers and mm-hmm. they use like colloquialisms from when they were a youth. I remember reading a book and they were talking about doobies and I'm like, like come hold on, on you know, y'all. Yeah. This is the 70s. <laughs> you know, let's, let's talk about blunts here or whatever. But um, I, I was very impressed with the authentic voice and I was also um, uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier but there was no big like epiphany like oh, okay I'm going to go to college now or mm-hmm. I'm going to you know I'm now a woman or you know it's you know some of the these like and you know when you're a teenager and you're you're going into adulthood, it's just a messy time, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like you don't know anything and you think you know everything. And I, there was just like this really well uh, written like confusion about life. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I think that really came across really well. Um, I want to talk about another part of the book in a little bit, but isn't it, if anybody else I, wants to I chime. I had a question about that passage. There, There's the... Um, that epithet purple smoke mm-hmm. <clears throat> and i noticed a lot in in your writing not just in the novel but in um in some of your nonfiction too the, the co- using colors as adjectives where they where they normally wouldn't be I th- in the opening paragraph of this book i think the the narrator is listening to like burnt pink music or mm-hmm. something like that and i I have a friend who, he's a musician, he's pretty good, and he, he always says he wants to make purple-sounding music. That's awesome. I'm just like, uh-huh, that, that's, that's cool, I'm behind it. Well, I mean, what are you talking about? It's yeah. like synesthesia, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I'm, yeah. I'm like very, very mildly synesthetic, and um, so that part feels honest and sincere to me. I don't know what that is. It's when you see, if it's a neurological condition where you associate things that we would normally, for example, your sense of smell translates into colors. Oh, okay. So, in, like some taking people, acid. A little bit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I yeah, mean, when you can like see the music all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, yeah, yep. okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's it's a it's a condition that affects. It's a very rare condition actually, but it affects a certain amount of people. Com- certain composers have had it. They they huh. say that they'll see music as a you know in certain colors or people can experience smells in other ways because synesthesia is not just colors to music i believe it's a condition where uh any sense can be transposed over another sense so i mean like you can smell i guess touch or something like that i think that's that's technically the way it is Mm -hmm. so well since we're talking about colors i'm gonna go into the passage that i was talking about there's a there's a scene and um the protagonist's best friend is john Mm -hmm. right and it says, when John painted on the die, I played with the little box of crayons his mom kept by the phone. One is called Magic Mint, which John says should be an STD. I held the crayons in my lap because if you look down, your eyes burn less. I said Violet Blue would be a good pen name. Um, and Violet Blue is actually a pen name. I don't know if you know that. But one of my buddies dated a porn star in San Francisco. Her name was Violet Blue. And mm-hmm. she had written two books about oral sex, one for men, one for women. I went to one of their... They're great books. Yeah, I went to her book uh, release out in San Francisco. He lives in Oakland now, but uh, 
But that uh, the magic mint, which John says should be an STD, it totally reminded me of like the kids I ran with when I was right. young. Like, it'd be like, oh man, that sounds like a venereal disease. Oh, you know, and like, <laughs> you're like, have you all had sex? Like, how are we doing this? Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you don't even know what that is really, but you know, just from health class or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, that line, I, I, I folded the page. Um, don't fold your library book pages, people. Um, because Says I the just, librarian who just folded the page. I know, I know. <laughs> do and as I say, not as I do. Book. I, hope, <laughs> I hope the commissioner is not listening. It's probably not. Um, but, uh, you know, I just thought that that made me laugh out loud. And, and one of the things that, you know, and I love humor in writing when it's not um, when it's not contrived, you know. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like – and. Uh, you know, I, that's one of the things in your writing I noticed. It it never felt contrived. It never felt – it just kind of had this nice, like, leisurely kind of, like, teenage flow. and um, Never felt forced. Yes, that's what you yeah. – yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. But, you, you know, this brings up something else that I wanted to ask. Uh, was a lot of this book developed in live reading situations? Yeah, it was. So, it, interestingly, when I read the book, I had a – very different reaction to it reading it than when Shanna did the readings for the book and I heard the readings and I was editing it back. Mm -hmm. The book to me made a much deeper impression when it was read to me, Mm -hmm. which is strange because I don't normally consume audiobooks and stuff, but we obviously do the readings every show and Shanna reads all these books. It's the first time I can can think of where the the book made a, a much greater impact and I started to say, oh, you know, you know, now I'm kind of getting it, now I'm kind of getting into it. Was this book designed, in a sense, to be read out loud as a result? I mean, it started that way for sure. And and I think one of the other great specific things about Chicago is you really are always aware of an audience and, like, how to keep things going. And, um, like, I remember going to Lindsay and Mary's Quickies, um, which was just, you know, how do you do a short, intense story that keeps people in a, in a noisy room engaged. Um, and I think you learn a lot from that. The The book on the page doesn't really have chapter breaks, um, and it doesn't ever have quotation marks, because when I was a teenager, I felt like everything was like both inside and outside your head at once. You know, it's kind of like how we are now, where you can kind of hear yourself in your headphones, and then also you're speaking. Um, so it was important to me to have that just kind of all be like one long thread in the book. Um, that's not always the clearest reading experience I know, um, which I guess is why it, it's I like reading it aloud, too. Um, it feels intimate, like someone sitting right next to you, which is what I tried to do. So. so, we should also mention that there are a couple of clubs here at Copro, including the Story Club, mm-hmm. which does live readings. I, did you ever participate in Story Club? Or was that not here? I didn't, but I've listened. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Story Club is on it. The Prosperity Sphere. If you want to see live readings, you can see that. I think it's the second. Oh, they're going to kill me. I think it's the second Tuesday of the month or, or the third Tuesday of the month. I can't remember. But look on the Facebook page. Um, <laughs> that also brings up another thing, though, and I think this is something we talked about before the show. The book, uh, as I think Jeremy's mentioned, it this reads like a young adult novel. Mm-hmm. Is that what you intended when you wrote the book, or it, it is what you intended? I think to some degree, it's also you know I'm I've I've worked in PR and so I know how to market a book. But I think the hardest thing to do is just to write your own book first. So I didn't. I thought about telling the story, and then um, when I worked with. Um, Tim and Zach at Featherproof, we talked about kind of how we wanted it to be. And um, the cover is from a, um, it's kind of yoinked from a Gordon Matta Clark image that I really felt important about. And um, we wanted to do a bright color because I like color a lot and we want it to be smaller. Um, Zach did a really brilliant job and then Tim did a brilliant job with like thinking about how to put it out in places. 
Um, so I guess I didn't know. I just kind of wanted to write it. <laughs> it's funny when you talk about those reading series. There was a um, they used to do this trauma reading at Quimby's, and mm-hmm. I, I did the punk rock trauma. And so there was like ten people, and and a couple like one woman wrote about this like crush she had, and mm-hmm. I, I talked about this party I was at where I fired off a shotgun at the party, you know, and like it was quite it. it it was bad. Sounds right? intense, yeah. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in recovery for a reason, but it was just like looking around the room because like everyone was talking about like this, like I had this crush and we went to see you know Apocalypse Hoboken and he wouldn't talk to me. And I like tell the story. I was like, and then when I was done, I was like, you guys did say trauma. <laughs> I mean, that's real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like real trauma, and I probably traumatized some people at that party, including myself and my landlord and the guy that lived upstairs. Um, I. I but the reason I'm telling this is, like, I really – one of the things about those readings, especially in the city, some of them are great, some of them are terrible. Mm-hmm. But you also get a wide spectrum of experience. And, right. like, I can – like, I can learn more from this book than I can, you know, from, you know, listening to people's, you know, crazy alcoholic stories because I've heard so many of them. You know what I mean? So that's um, why it's – it was refreshing for me anyway. Will, will you be making an audio version? see you in the morning i would like to um yeah i haven't i've I haven't done it there's there's recordings of the readings in different places but um but i haven't um but i mean it, it sounds like you know you you knew what the space of the trauma was like that's something that i have a hard time with with reading sometimes where it's like how raw can you be and then you do it and you're kind of like whoa i didn't i don't know how i feel about people hearing these stories you know but um but when you are in control of it i think it's a good thing because we all have traumas <laughs> you know being in a recovery program, you get really good at talking about trauma yeah. because that's and people, you know, and we just laugh about it, you know, and right. that's that's kind of one of the beautiful things. I'm not going to say what group we're in, but you know, you hear people tell these terrible stories, and we're all like, oh, you know, and it just it kind of you learn to laugh at it, and you you learn to accept um, not only your role in it, and but also how you affect other people, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not. It, when I talk about things like that, it doesn't come from a place of pride. Like right. I'm a, you know, I'm a bad guy and junkie and blah, blah, blah. And it was just more like I did something really stupid and it was really upsetting. And this is it, you know? Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, this is it, you know, it's like this book, like everything felt traumatic at a yeah. certain point, you know, and you're like, how do I put a shape on this? I don't know. <laughs> well, and I also, there was like this sense of, uh, um, I don't want to say like disenchantment or, disassociation but like you know when she lost her virginity and Mm -hmm. had the miscarriage um she seemed very uh what's the word i'm looking for not attached but disattached disattached yeah Mm -hmm. detached i think detached she seemed very detached from these events and um she was very mad at her her uh when she lost her virginity it's very much like many of us too it's not like this wonderful moment and she was very detached from it, and it was a very, like, very creepy experience. Right. That guy was horrible. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> that is the next reading. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that guy was the worst. And uh, we're going to play that. And then we have to go into our break because uh, we got to remind people about the people that uh, help make this station possible. But this is the very scene that we're just discussing. You are listening to I-94 here on Lumpin' Radio, and this is a reading from See You in the Morning about, well, Jeremy's just spoiled it, so you're going to hear <laughs> Inside again, the band was breaking down, and I went back to the fridge. The drummer, Cheesecake Guy, he came over. He put his hand on my elbow, said hi, soft. 
I noticed how nice his eyebrows were. They kind of floated in front of his face, like right at first when you put on 3D glasses and open your eyes towards the screen. I hadn't noticed them out in the crowd. He had whiskey and said I was pretty, and he didn't ask me anything about myself. Instead, he talked about his new album, It's Solo. The songs are ones everyone knows, but the sound is just him. Sometimes people have to be tricked into hearing something new, you know, he winked. If I put out an album of my own songs first, it'd take much longer for people to care. He had three crosses around his neck. One for Jesus, and one for God, and one for the ghost. He had a nice voice, and I trusted him. It felt like my face was covered in perfume, or a scarf. If he was in a car, I would sit next to him. Instead, I followed him to the porch, where it was just us. Rosie found me. Her lipstick was run, its color slipped left like she'd wiped her mouth hard with her hand. I'm done here, she said. I'm going home. You okay? Call me in the morning. She waited a beat like I could go with her if I wanted to. I shook my head. Okay, I said. Okay, I'm okay. I love you. She blinked and looked at the drummer and then at me. I shook my head, said I'd call her in the morning, and I mean it. Rosie, go. I put my head in the drummer's neck and said I was moving to New York. It was a new thought, but saying it felt so easy I believed myself too. I was going to eat black and white cookies and write magazine articles and cry at the opera. Why not? He said, when? Soon, I said. He said, well, if you know what's right, what's in your heart, then Jesus will help you. He will walk you towards truth. I looked at the drummer's eyelashes. He put my cup on the stair and took my hand and we went upstairs. We laid down on the same mattress. Downstairs, the headliner was starting, and through the air vents, I could hear pineapple upside-down cake girls sort of shrieking. The drummer took off everything but his crosses. He licked my neck and pulled my hair. He smelled like gas station nachos. There was a black velvet poster on the wall, half a snake of incense in the corner. I watched it go in and out of view behind his shoulder. I figured I was getting this out of the way. The first time always feels like outer space. Afterwards, we laid shoulders touching, looking at the wet bumps in the ceiling. Thanks for what you said about Jesus, I said, and ran my finger down his arm. I never thought about it like that before. Sure, baby, he said. Sure, hey. I'll be right back. I must have fallen asleep because then it was morning. Though no birds yet, and I was still on the mattress. I was cold. I checked for bleeding because I hear sometimes you do, but the mattress was still only stained blue. And welcome back. You are listening to Lumpen Radio. This is I-94. We're here with Jeremy Kitchen, Mike Sack, Merritt Case. And of course, I am Jamie Trecker. We've been hearing readings from Merritt Case's new book, See You in the Morning. And just before we went to break, Jeremy spoiled the reading that you were going to hear. Which yeah, was about spoil him. alert. Sorry, jeez. people. Oh, jeez. So... Uh, <laughs> That was the, the reading we heard just before going to break, however, was when the main character loses uh, her virginity. And we've been talking about uh, the kind of real awkward feelings that mm-hmm. are in this book. Take us through a little bit about that scene, because I think, as Jeremy mentioned, uh, the lead character does feel very detached from what's going on around her. And this scene, uh, another spoiler alert, he's already told you what's going to happen in the book, but it, it's going to lead to serious complications down the road for mm-hmm. our young hero. Tell us a little bit about... Um, how you crafted that scene, and it, it does feel very real. It feels kind of this something that would absolutely happen in someone's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up reading, um, like, Judy Bloom books, and there's always this minute in those where, like, some sort of intense puberty thing happens, and they're, like, you know, looking at, like, the 
sanitary pad, which at that point you like were wearing with a belt and like were kind of horrified by it, but then also kind of into it and like, oh, like I'm an adult now. And like my experience was mostly just kind of being horrified by the things that were happening. Um, and this character too, like I've, I've worked to not put any specific gender markers on the, um, the, the descriptions of the book in different places. Like it's all gender neutral in the Amazon copy. And so I think sometimes, especially at this point in your life when you're, you know, your body's going through puberty and that's a gendered thing, but if you're not sure you want it in any way, or if it just feels extra weird, then you don't know. Um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to figure out where your gender lies and then your body's getting pregnant, then that's like totally alienating. Right. Um, so I, I wanted to, to write that, um, in a way that was as true as I could do it. I had a question, <clears throat> excuse me, about, um, I wanted to talk about style, I guess. It seemed like in reading some of your other stuff, uh, what's the Tumblr site where your nonfiction and some of your other work is? Um, it's just my name and then uh, summeraidcase, tumblr.com. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's M-A-I-R-E-A-D-C-A-S-E. Thank you. Tumblr. Yeah. Um, there, we call it detached. It's re it is really hard to think of, of of the proper word to describe the style because I got that same feeling too. And it's not just that scene. It was through the book and through some of your other writing. It, it's this intrusion of thoughts and feelings that come out of nowhere from other places, and they they just go smack in the middle of. And you're like, Shh, guys, go back in the box. Right, <laughs> right. Is that something? Do you feel you have to write that way or is it something you strive to make that way? I feel like it's true for how my brain works. Um, is it natural? Yeah, but I, it's not, it's, you know, it's definitely not natural if you're doing like a straight nonfiction piece. And so I've, I've learned to, you know, calm down the, the everyone that comes and crowds around the mic, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, yeah. Does it feel detached? Detached? Seems like the only word I have for it, but I it know, doesn't seem like it fits. It's, something, it's, well, dream, it's dreamy, detached. It's, it's almost just kind of digressive as well. I mean, there are. I think the intrusion is a good way to put it because it does feel as if there's a narrative thread or there's a, a line of inquiry, and then all of a sudden, all the other stray random thoughts that are going on in your head that you don't necessarily pay attention to. Um, have just jumped in. I mean, so for example, it's like you're making breakfast and you're thinking about the weather and then all of a sudden you're having a memory of when you were a seven-year-old and you embarrassed yourself in front of your parents or something like that. <laughs> and these things happen. No, I mean, these yeah. things happen oh, all, totally. all the time. Yeah. And I think that's that's actually what we're trying to get at, this kind of um, very normal, but you know, in a way it's unsettling and disturbing. Uh, it, it's uncomfortable. So I think there's an uncomfortable underpinning to some of this stuff. At least that's the way that I, I took it. Because mm -hmm. I think I feel very uncomfortable when I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I remember when I, I don't know, wet my pants at, as a seven-year-old because <laughs> totally. I couldn't get my snow pants off. You know, and you're, I know, oh, it was but, raining that day too. Like, and, oh no, it's all connected. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah. No, I mean, and you know, you're, you're just making eggs. You right. know, I mean, so is that, I mean, is that kind of where we're going here? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds true. And I think sometimes too, which has been pinned to anxiety in like, you know, the real life, which is not always the work life, but, um, but yeah, um, there, uh, a good example of that in the um, in the nonfiction stuff is twenty failed beginnings for an obituary mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, that was uh, one of the things that happened when I was new to Chicago was um, when Malachi Richter died um, uh, near the Dan Ryan. He um, set himself on fire to protest the war. 
And um, I met a lot of people that I now consider family through organizing around that. Um, so, you know, Mark Fisher. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, and Jerry Boyle. Yeah. And, um, and it, was, it was one of those things, though, that, like, you know, you can talk about what happened. Like, there's this body here, and it's burnt, and we're involved in a war. But it doesn't really – there's no it, – it felt false to kind of, like, tie it to a straight narrative that, you know, begins and ends in a clear way. Because there was also – you know, Malachi was at jazz shows all the time, and I stood behind him a lot, and I listened to his recordings. And so the piece itself is um, – different first sentences to something that could have been an obituary of his. Um, and then there's a, there's another piece in there about drinking less. Mm-hmm. And you say somewhere in there about how you're say in there. In, in there. Oh, okay. <laughs> in there too. Yeah. Wait, no, south side. <laughs> in there. I, I, I say, say washing machine. I say dare. <laughs> I've been hanging around you too much. Two, two, three things. Uh-huh. <laughs> and listening to Polly too much. Mm. Oh well, Paul, he, he's on at two o'clock, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, near the end, you say something about I'm too good at at making rules mm-hmm. for myself, and it almost killed me, or I almost died because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, were you being literal, or were you? Yeah, I'm not always literal in my work, but um, but yeah, thank you for reading that closely. Um, yeah, it, it did almost kill me once. Um, I I can be pretty obsessive compulsive about things and I kind of got myself in a box where I wasn't really leaving the box ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, like everything isn't autobiographical, but I think you have to write from a place of truth. Otherwise it does feel false. And um, yeah, I think, I think sometimes you can't tie things up cleanly or you can't make too many rules. Um, you know, at, at the very least it gets boring. Um, that's why Mark and I are partners because he's a very careful reader and I'm a very sloppy reader. And he cleans up my messes a lot, so that's that's why we work together both. so well. Yeah, yeah. But I want to get back to your book too, but before we do, you do a lot of other stuff. You do work in prisons as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's something very, very interesting, yeah. and I want to get to that before we run out of time. Tell us a little bit about exactly what you do, and then. Uh, kind of want to go a little deeper into that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a place where um, being mildly obsessive compulsive now helps because, you know, you have to look a certain way to be able to to get through the trainings and to be able to be present. And um, that's important. Um, it, it grew out of the work that I learned how to do here. Um, I learned from Annie Nepler and Hal Adams at UIC about doing community writing workshops. And the idea being that you sit down, you know, very loosely, the idea being and you're all looking at the same piece of paper and you read it aloud together and you just talk about it and how it relates to you. And, um, you know, if, if folks want to read a sonnet and we, we can talk about the Volta and like that sort of a power language, but it's just one version of a power language. Um, so I come into the jail every week and I bring in a packet about a theme that um, they usually choose um, if they have preferences. And then we so we've done, you know, modern love. We've done loss. Um, We've done the color orange as a way to kind of start talking about Trump. Um, you know, I try, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist and I don't try and lead anything, but we're all sitting down looking at the same paper and talking and then we respond to it creatively. How many people are usually in a group? It varies. Um, you know, they can't, I'm, I'm in there at the, at the time right now with other um, support groups, which I don't, I don't feel that I am because I'm not professionally trained for that, but that's kind of what we're going up against. And so if someone wants to go to their support group that day, I'm not going to tell them not to go. Um, and, you know, people can call their kids at that hour, so they can't always come. But usually on a good day, we have about 15 to 18. Oh, wow. Um, that's a good number. And this, yeah. is in, this is in Colorado. Yes, and I've, but I've done it here too, and I've done it in Indiana. Um, and the idea being that, you know, 
you all talk about ghosts and in class or in writing workshop, and then you also talk about ghosts and chow later that day, and then you make a friend in a very sincere way, you know. Just for all the listeners, I think it's a little, it probably is a little too long-winded to talk about how you can get involved in that sort of volunteer work, but Maraid has a, a piece on it on that on that Tumblr site saying it's just called Teaching in Prison. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've done done some recovery meetings at Cook County and mm-hmm. it's always been a really cool experience and what they do is when you go in there they just put you in there mm-hmm. with all these dudes and you give a lead and it's it's yeah. it was pretty I always had a good time and everyone was really nice you know it was it was a very positive experience have you read any of um there's a there was like a lot of prison writers 60s and 70s and 80s I uh, Edward Bunker is one I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever read him I love him yeah and I this is really weird, but ever since I was a little kid, I've always had obsession with prisons and fraternities and sororities. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's because I did not know. This. Yeah, they're just like <laughs> I read books about them on both sides, and I think it's just because they're two things that are so alien to me, like fraternities and sororities, prison, right? So the two places I never want to go, um, but also like the stories behind them are so fascinating because it's just like it's not my world. Um, and I was wondering, do you ever use other prison writers that um, in, in your workshops? And maybe if you want to talk about some of those writers, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and we also, one of the great things about us just kind of being in that space is like we can also talk about how, you know, horrible that space is. It's basically like legalized slavery, you know. And, um, and so we, we... Is it a work program too? Um, not, mine isn't, but okay. um, but people are in work programs that are in there too. Um, we, we read, we read Rachel McKibben's a lot. Um, we read Asada a lot. Um, we read, uh, the thing that we read a couple of weeks ago was, um, Hattie Gossett has that piece in this bridge called my back where, um, she's like, and then I also have to write the introduction to my book. She's like, it wasn't enough to like write the book itself. And now I have to tell y'all what it's about, you know? And it's, it's very real. It's like, okay, like how do you want to explain yourself? And like, or when do you want people to kind of come to your work? And she doesn't use a lot of capitalization too, so it's been a good way in there to kind of talk about power structures because, you know, not everybody uses capitalization and it doesn't mean that you don't get it. It just means you're making a choice. Um, so we do a lot of that. Um, we read Kevin Koval and Robbie Telfer and, um, yeah, a bunch of different kinds of stuff. I, I try to take their lead. That's awesome. I was actually thinking about that a little bit, just you know, a lot of the Panthers wrote. Yeah. Um, Oh, Asada was a panther, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is that Tupac's mom? No, no. Okay. Her name's Asada too, isn't it? Because Tupac's mom was a black panther. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah. The, yeah. Is that like a one of the names they say? Well, anyway, it's neither here nor there. But uh, I when I was I haven't actually I didn't read any of your nonfiction. I'm glad Mike read it carefully. I just read the book, but I I did want to talk about that because um, and does it um. Does the administration feel that these programs are important or is it just something they have to do? Do you feel like it's something they're I mean, into, I, I guess, for lack of a better? Yeah, I think they're, they're into it as poetry. I always resist it being called like a, a therapeutic kind of a situation. Um, it is, though. Just I know you're not. No, no, I know. But, you know, every once in a while I'm like, you know, we have we always have two rules. The first rule is that um, we don't assume it's autobiographical unless you tell us, which lets people um, kind of like have the power for how they want to talk about their trauma, cool. you know. And then um, the second rule is just to kind of keep it as a respectful space, which means you can speak whatever language you want. Like I've had deaf folks in the class. I've had um, there was there's one amazing 
think she's 80 now. She always writes porn. Um, and uh, she's she's just like, this is what I want to do, and this is great. And she's always like, Marie, you might be a little weirded out by this. Can you handle this now? And I'm like, I, I can handle it today. I'm feeling good about it. And then she'll read her piece, and she's amazing. Um, so it's... I think I think they're into it. They wouldn't they wouldn't let me be there if they weren't. You know? That's it's interesting too because like an eighty year old woman, not necessarily a menace to society, still locked up. You know, yeah. the the elderly prison population always freaks me out. I mean, obviously you don't want like you know Richard Speck running loose when he's eighty, but you know it's just such a weird to keep people locked up in the, like you know when they're eighty years old. It's 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 a bit bizarre plague yeah and they're not getting the health care they need and yeah yeah is this a for-profit prison or is it um, one of the state ones um right now i'm in one of the state ones Uh, that was actually what i was going to ask you if you know it wasn't necessarily clear whether people were able to bring in and read their own stuff um have you in doing this found writers of of power and clarity that that people you know just aren't exposed to at all um because, I mean, it seems that there's a great many voices we, we incarcerate. I think it's 10 to 15 percent of our population, yeah. which is an enormous number when you think about it. And there's all these voices that were denied hearing. I mean, what what are the I guess what are the lessons and, and things you've taken away from this? I mean, I, I appreciate too how you talk about it because it's like we're, we're denied hearing them. Like I think a lot of times when people talk about this kind of work, they'd say, oh, you know, you're giving them a voice or whatever. And they definitely already have voices. It's we're just giving them a platform. Um, I think. We always have a conversation too, and that's where the idea of like being a working writer and how money comes in. Like I've I've had several situations where people are like, "Oh, can you help me get published and make some money?" And um, that's not really how it works, as we all know. Um, so we have clarity conversations around that. But there there definitely are amazing writers, and um, it it is a privilege to just be able to sit and listen. Um, what's starting to happen now, which is really great, is people will bring in work of their own, as you're saying, and then we type it up and put it in the packet. So it's like, you know, so-and-so next to you has her work in here next to Asada, next to Angela Davis. Um, And so we're all reading it together. And I think it's really powerful. Like, as you know, like, oh, you walk into the library and you see your book on the shelf next to all these people. Like, my voice does belong here. And so then we can kind of open up that conversation. Um, So that's been a really privileged moment that I've had. It's really rad to give people like a fancy type packet with their own work in it, you know, or with so-and-so next to you's work in it. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're really great. Like, nicely done. Um, so it's a community building thing in that way. And then if they want to reach out beyond that, I can help them. But I, I try not to bring that in as a priority. Did you work in a for-profit prison? Because you said currently you're in a state prison. Um, I worked in a, in a like a juvie in, in Indiana that was for-profit. Oh, I didn't know there were for-profit juvies. That makes my stomach hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it was... I, mean, I hate to laugh about it. That's just so gross. And it, it's kind of all for-profit to a point, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, Yeah. It was interesting. I had a conversation with somebody. Oh, my friend Brent, he's also a librarian. And, um, we were out the other night. We were talking about, I've always, you know, basically libraries are a socialist. You know, we mm-hmm. take your tax dollars and give you things for free, right? And uh, So crazy. Yeah. And we were talking about how, you know, why the right wing hasn't, you know, it's like libraries, it's a socialist tool, you know, and you can check out anything you want. And and it's it's simple because when people have these things, Mm-hmm. You know, it's we saw this with the healthcare backlash with libraries. Like once they see what it good it can be, you know, they don't want to get rid of it. You know, it's right. like, and I, I I think this country just needs like a push over the hump to like get rid of this evil s word. You know, and that that the for profit jail. I, I've you know I've, I've read a lot about it. And I've seen a lot of documentaries, but it, it's 
possibly one of the most disgusting things that this country does. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have for-profit schools, though. We're, we're creating a chain Well, those are disgusting, too. For-profit, <laughs> particularly in this city, that uh, yeah. we, we train kids to be incarcerated at a very young age. Or join the military. Well, so, or join the military. So the, the argument, I think, for, for from the perspective of these for-profit organizations is that because they're engaging in, in monetary competition, their practices are going to be better because they have the monetary incentive. Do you do you see a difference in the practices between for-profit prisons and state prisons? Uh, I mean, in terms of like what I'm asked to do to report, um, I, I have to kind of do, you know, going back to narrative, like I have to give numbers to things and say who was in here and like how many pieces did we write and, and what did we do with that? And it's, it's less that way in other spaces. Um, we, we try in that room to talk about what's on the page. There've been a couple of times where, you know, something's happened in the, the jail that day. And so folks bring that in and, and like, and we have the space to talk about that. But, um, but we, we try and keep it be, you know, you want to come here and you want to write and you want to talk about the theme that you chose and, and go there. Ever um, been a fight? Just curious. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Fist fights? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, we want to get back a little bit to your writing because we're running out of time. We have one last reading that Jeremy's already spoiled. He's already oh, told you what's going to happen. It's cool, though. If you, know, if we you all, were we paying, all know how these things I'm go. sorry, people. If you were just paying forget attention. about the first. Whenever I talk, just block it out. Okay, here we go. <laughs> the day the guy went crazy was the first of the month, so we were switching up the racks. I spent 45 minutes fighting a cardboard mobile and 15 stickering explicit stickers on the wrong albums. 20 more doing it right. A lady came in and wanted music for morning walks. This guy wanted a song for a wedding dance with his mom. I did one sweep for stolen merch and nodded hey to Leo, who was chewing his finger and reading about musicals. I was late because last night John and I fought. We were going to meet at a wall in the park, but he didn't come for two hours and he wasn't answering his phone, so I walked to his house and sat on the stoop. I didn't just let myself in because I wanted him to know... I didn't just let myself in because I wanted him to know this was important. When he finally came home, I said, John, I am not a mope, but if you say we're meeting somewhere, it's mean to not show up. He looked at me like my face was an etch-a-sketch and he could shake it. Point is, I said, point is I love you, John. Then he really got mad. I didn't know what to do, but I'd already decided I wouldn't let him make me feel dumb. By then, I'd really missed the last bus, so I told Mom I was at a friend's and slept on John's pull-out couch. He was still mad. I dreamed weirdness, like it was the rapture, and I had some of John's hair, so he had to find me. He rode a big yellow bike, and afterwards, I helped him find his tooth in the lake, too. Next morning, I got up and left before anyone was up. I sweat a lot when we fight, so I smelled terrible. The bus from John's is an hour away from the bookstore, and that's why I was late. Pretty soon Steve came back and I could go on break. I wish Steve was my cousin so we could hang out on Christmas. I gave him my name tag and my swipe card and went to the back. Don't go over, okay, Steve said. Story time's in an hour. Steve, I said. Steve, don't worry, I know. I couldn't tell if he was worried or just wanted to say something. Sometimes I think our name tags should be two-sided. One is our name for the customers and the other is a list of things our coworkers can talk with us about. Mine would say Joan of Arc, house shows, and where are the best donuts. I don't eat in the lunchroom because it's depressing. Last week, the lady from Biography went on about giving birth. I didn't ask either. She just started. 
I guess she was in labor one whole day and ate only wild strawberry gelatin and chocolate pudding and ice chips. She said it feels like you are inside of a ring of fire. I said, that sounds terrible. Instead, I go to grab one of those magazines missing a cover and take it to the parking lot and read about makeup. Sometimes I rip out a perfume sample and keep it in my pocket. Today's sandwich was second day from a coffee shop. Limp pink bacon, rubber ball cheddar, and chicken like soft cheese and orange sauce over everything. I ate it while reading about DIY saddle shoes. The trick, if you want wingtips, is an exacto knife. The thing I didn't tell John is that I am maybe pregnant now. I mean, maybe not, but maybe. I'm one week over four weeks, and also, I, I never asked the drummer's name. I told myself if it goes five more days, I'm going to buy a test. It is helpful when you are sort of scared to set a date when you should really be scared. Before that, it's fine. I want to tell John, but I also don't. It complicates everything. I also wish it was him instead of me, him wondering. He probably wouldn't even go to work. And once again, that was another reading from See You in the Morning, a Married Case. Uh, that is the part where our young Harrow discovers that she is pregnant, uh, or she thinks she's pregnant at this point. She will actually be pregnant. And that's a spoiler, I guess. But it happens. I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> style, style. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this because, again, this was uh, one of the turning points in the book that it, the book doesn't have actually that many turning points uh, because, as we I think we've been talking all along, it's kind of a straightforward moment that's presented. Mm -hmm. But you've kind of concealed um, one of the major narrative arc turns just just kind of dropped in there with a lot of other stuff that frankly is more about her workplace and other things and was that a mm -hmm. conscious decision to kind of I guess camouflage it like that yeah and I think too it, it just it feels real you know like the 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 time structure of the book is that it's over a summer um it's it starts uh, with the graduation ceremony and it's like their their last summer um, before they do senior year of high school and then it's like are you going to have a family? Are you going to go to college? Are you going to go to work? What are you going to do? Um, there isn't a war, so they don't, they're not going to do that. Um, but um, When has there not been a war? I mean, I know, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess because they weren't aware of it at this point. But, um, but uh, I, I wanted to write about people going to work. I always, I've always had to work, and I've always had a job, and I thought it would be important to put in a book where, you know, just because you're 16 doesn't mean you don't have a summer job. Um, I think a lot of YA-type books don't have that, and it was important to me to speak to that. That's an interesting point. I was going to ask, are you working on anything now? I am. I'm working on a, um, a book uh, about um, another uh, teenage kind of femme-type person. Um, it's in uh, the third person this time, which feels different. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, it's called um, Tiny right now. Um, Tiny? Yeah. Um, the the main uh, arc in it right now is um, depression. Um, she has a brother who she knows is uh, really depressed and kind of looking around that. Um, it's based really loosely on the Greek story of Antigone. Um, so we'll see where it goes. But that's that's the next thing I'm working on. Are they for Featherproof too? Um, they use, they only really do one book per um, per author, and they, they try to work towards first book. So I, I would I certainly want to publish it. Um, and I I you know I'll. You know, we all know this, right? Like, I want them to read it, and I've read their books, and so it's it's still the community, but it probably won't be out for them. Are you more confident this time around, or does it feel like the first time again? Um, I'm more, I'm more confident in my own brain. Like, I I like 
what I'm writing and I, and I like that kind of a space, but I think you have to teach yourself how to do it all over again, you know? Do you have any readings coming up? I know you're in the area quite a bit. Yeah, I'm reading at um, I'm reading in South Bend, Indiana, um, tomorrow um, at the General Coffee Shop, um, and then I'm reading at Shuba's on Wednesday at eight, and at Hungry Brain on Thursday at eight thirty. Where's Hungry Brain? Hungry Brain is up on Belmont. Mm-hmm. Hungry Brain's up on uh, Belmont. It's a good jazz experimental space. In fact, they support a lot of. Uh, Lots of the guys from Constellation, I think, mm-hmm. actually uh, took over Hungry Brain and they run it. So it's a good space. There used to be a gnarly punk club in Detroit called the Hungry Brain back in the eighties. <laughs> they were shut down for good reason. But we should also mention that we have a live performance of I ninety four on August tenth. If you're in Pilsen, it will be a Pilsen community books. Seating is is very limited. Um, it uh, you should RSVP for that, but. Uh, Go to pilsencommunitybooks.org, I believe it is, is their website, and they have it up. But that will be with Anne Elizabeth Moore, who, of course, She's uh, amazing. Yes, a friend of, friend of ours and a friend of the show, and uh, someone who worked with you on Punk Planet as well mm-hmm. back in the day. Again, that is August 10th. That will be a live performance of I-94. Uh, you will be able to hear that on, on the radio uh, during our normal time slot uh, the following Sunday. Awesome. We want to thank everybody. We're almost out of time here, and This Is Hell is coming up at 11 o'clock. But do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, I'm, I'm really grateful to you all for taking the time with the work. It's been really great to talk with you. Um, and, I appreciate uh, having you. It was really nice. And can you – Shuba's again? What day? Um, Shuba's on Wednesday um, and uh, um, then Hungry Brain on Thursday. Okay. Thank mm-hmm. you. And that's Mary Case. If you're in town this week, this is uh, being taped, of course, on July 30th. So if you're hearing this um, sometime in late August, it's because our shows do repeat. Well, you missed her. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always back, though. I'm never too far away. <laughs> and with that, we want to remind you again, our next live show will be at Pills and Community Books on August 10th. It will air on Sunday. I believe that would be the 13th, if my math is correct. It's a Thursday. And we will see you all in what, two weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks. All right, guys. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, Thanks Jay. Take care. Thanks, Jay. I-94 is Lumpin Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured a discussion with Myrid Case about her book See You in the Morning from Featherproof Press. Music from the International Anthem Recording Company archive used with kind permission. This episode aired originally on July 30, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.